Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love with me, Eric Snader. I am so, 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 so excited to bring you this episode. Um, this is the very first episode that I have actually had a guest on the podcast, which even thinking about it still blows my mind to this day that I'm actually like interviewing people for this podcast. So um, this week's podcast guest um, is a wonderful, wonderful woman by the name of Erin McKenney. She is the executive director of Just Neighbors, which is an organization in D.C. which works towards humanitarian services for our migrant populations and neighbors. Um, so it is just an absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation that we have. Um, we talk about immigration. We talk about what it means to be in community with one another. It's just great. I came out of that conversation absolutely buzzing. And I hope that you, the listeners, will come out of listening this absolutely buzzing as well. Um just real quick, a couple logistical things, really just one logistical thing. Um, if you like the podcast, like it, like hit subscribe, um, either on Podbean or iTunes or wherever you're listening to this from, um, so subscribe, rate it, um, you know, go on there and leave a comment, something like that. Give me some feedback one so that I can, um, know what direction to take the podcast in, um, so that I know that it's something that's helpful for you. Um, and then two also so that other people can see what this podcast is about. Um, you know, commenting it and rating it is a really easy way for you to share this podcast with your friends, with the world, really. Um, you know, if this is something that's helpful for you, chances are it's going to be helpful for others too. Um, and I've already gotten some amazing feedback from some of you who are listening, um, some dear, dear friends who um, have just given me so much encouragement in the sense that, you know, this podcast has been really helpful for them. But anyway, I'm dragging on. We're going to close this intro out now. Um, we're talking with Aaron McKenney today. So let's Talk about it. A couple of years ago, I would not have said that. But. <laughs> Yeah, so how long how long have you been with Just Neighbors? Uh, I'm approaching three years. Okay. I I, uh, I was hired about four months before the election. Um, so um, I had uh, been working at a day shelter. Um, I had a 20-year career with Verizon, left that, took an early out um, through missions at my church, got involved in this day shelter I'd worked there for about seven years and was really looking to do something more justice oriented. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the irony of it is representing our church, Just Neighbors was looking to move into a second campus that we had. And so I was kind of representing the church side of it. And I had been familiar with the organization, but um, hadn't done any work with them. And 
um, in the midst of negotiating that the executive director found out her husband was leaving Wesley uh, Wesley Seminary, Kendall mm -hmm. Solon, and was going to be they were going to move to Atlanta. Yeah, and so um, I, you know I had kind of been thinking I was ready to leave the day shelter and was looking for something more justice oriented, and I think it was a God intervention mm -hmm. um, that kind of said put all the things together at the right place and right time, and um, so yeah, that's how I ended up here. Very cool, very cool. Not, not anticipating the election outcome and the changes in right. immigration. <laughs> so. that, I, think that, I think it's safe to say that that kind of took us all by surprise. Yeah, probably shouldn't have, but it did. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so how long has Just Neighbors been around? We are in our 23rd year. Okay. Um, and it was started um, in the basement of a Methodist church um, by attorneys and a pastor and um, with the, the goal of serving low-income immigrants okay. um, they recognize the fact that um, even 23 years ago low-income immigrants ability to um, get their filings in and things like that was very challenged without legal representation but they couldn't afford legal representation right so um, the organization was set up to serve those who are below 200 percent of poverty level which today for a family of four, it's under fifty thousand um, dollars, and and it's always been a fairly small organization. And we do humanitarian-based immigration law, so we don't do employment-based. We don't do most family unity. So once you're a legal permanent resident or a citizen, you can petition for family members. We generally don't do those. We'll do a few. But so what um, what consists of like humanitarian-based immigration law? So humanitarian generally means our clients have been a victim of something. Okay. Um, natural disaster, war, um, crime, domestic violence, persecution of some sort. So um, refugees and asylees are clearly um, fall into that. Victims of domestic violence, there's um, what's called VAWA, Violence Against Women's Act, applies to men too. Um, but it's immigrants who have who are married to U.S. citizens or green card holders who are abused um, to some degree because of their status as well, um, or victimized because of their status. Um, traffic, victims of trafficking. Um, we also have done a lot of temporary protected status, and, and we've done more DACAs um, than any of the other nonprofits in Northern Virginia. So, you know, Humanitarian is, it's not employment-based, so, right. you know, it's not somebody who's coming here with a visa to do a job, um, and it's it's really, in most cases, our clients have been a victim in some way, shape, or form. Okay. Um, so what sort of um, legal aid do you most normally provide for people? So the direct services we provide are actually to help them um, submit their application for whatever immigration benefit they're eligible for. So we screen our clients, meaning we do a comprehensive check of kind of all of the options that may or may not be available to them to determine what their best pathway is, if they have one. And the reality is many of the immigrants do not have a legal pathway to documentation. And if that's the case, then 
we educate them on what their rights are. Um, and basically, because they're so vulnerable and so desperate, we really encourage them not to pursue with other attorneys or, or the people who are offering to help them because they don't have anything. Mm -hmm. And they are often, often subject to fraud um, because um, they're so desperate. And if somebody says, for $3,000, I'll get you a green card, we've reviewed the case and know there's no way. So what we try to do is say, look, you do not have a pathway. Don't give your money to somebody who tells you you do. If you hear something or, you know, we'll be happy to go over it and see if something's changed that would, would offer you a pathway to documentation. Um, but you don't have one. So don't let somebody try to convince you that you do. So that, that's one aspect of what we do. So we screen them. Then if in that screening we find they have a pathway, and some know that they do and others are trying to figure it out. So if we know they're eligible for a temporary or permanent status, then we do the case that's actually putting their case together. Temporary status like DACA and TPS are a little simpler, you know, but they have to be renewed every two years. Um, when you get into cases like asylum or victims of domestic violence or a victim of a violent crime, those kinds of things are much more complicated. Um, and those often the cases that are more complicated often lead to more permanent status, a great card that ultimately leads to naturalization possibilities. So, um, yeah, that's that's the deal. Right, right on, right on. So what is your role in Just Neighbors? So I'm the executive director. Okay. Um, I run the business as an entity, mm -hmm. um, make sure that we have enough money to pay our bills and pay everybody. <laughs> That's a necessity. Um, and, and quite frankly, as executive director, my primary function is is fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we we are small. Um, our, our budget has grown 50% in the last two years. We affectionately call it the Trump bump because mm -hmm. people have said, here's money, do what you can to help the situation. Right, yeah. Um, so we've been working very hard to um, really put more meat around our development processes. Um, we've actually hired a development associate, so we're, we're trying to be more effective in our fundraising. We're trying to apply for more grants now that we have some more resources. So, um, so I lead that effort. Um, and, and quite frankly, I, I'm not an attorney, so I can't do the legal work. Right. But um, I'm also really spent a lot of time last since really since the election doing a lot of uh, community education um, I've had a lot of faith communities both in the Methodist Church and outside who said help us understand what this means I you know and what we can do so um, I've done a ton of presentations to faith communities and and non-faith communities just about kind of what's going on what what does this rhetoric mean what what are the facts um, and we've really tried to um, We've kind of added that as, as one of our principal purposes. Um, it was it was kind of done before, but not as intently as we do it now in, in a way that we, we see one of our missions is actually to do community education around immigration. Right. So not to like put you on the spot or anything like that, but what are some of the facts? Like what is the present situation that we find ourselves in? Um, you know, we are in need of comprehensive immigration reform. 
Okay. We have not had that since the Reagan administration. Which is a while ago. Which is a while ago. <laughs> and there are roughly 11 million undocumented, of which probably 20 to 25 percent have some pathway to documentation and may not either know it, may not have pursued it because they can't afford to, um, or, or there's other blocks um, in, that, in that situation. Um, and so, you know, over this now close to 40 years since Reagan was in, you know, there have been more and more people coming um, without documentation. And um, the, the big debate on that is, um, you know, do you just let people adjust because they've been here long? You know, if they've been good residents, if they haven't committed crimes, that kind of thing, or what's the penalty? So this is tough stuff. Right, yeah. This is, this is not, there's not an easy answer, as I always say, or we would have figured it out. Um, so I think we need comprehensive immigration reform. There have been bipartisan bills brought up under the Obama administration, but one, one House of Congress or another would not even bring it up for a vote. So there's obviously politics involved. Um, the reality is, I, I, I think there's, there is a crisis. The crisis is a humanitarian crisis. Um, if, you, if you look around the world right now, there are more than 65 million people displaced, either in their countries or out of their countries because of conditions wow. there. Um, and you know, of those, you know, about 40 million are displaced within their country. So if you think of, of a famine or a war or something that forces somebody to move from one part of their country, so they, they've had to move from their homes, but they yeah. haven't left their country, that's the largest portion of that number. There are about 25 million who are displaced into a second country. And those are the ones who are refugees, as defined by the UN. Right. High Commission on Refugees, 25 million people worldwide in that status, they're waiting for a country to accept them into the third country, their destination. A couple years ago, we took almost 100,000. We're probably going to take 20,000 this year. Is there any particular reason for that downturn in acceptance? It is... The administration's choice to set the numbers, they set the numbers this year for 30,000, whether we'll actually get 30,000 or not because of delays in processing and things like that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. The Obama administration had started to raise the number, it had gone from like 60 to 80 and the last year it was supposed to be 100. The Trump administration has reduced to 40 and then 30. Okay. Um, so, so now keep in mind that the United States is still the largest recipient of refugees in the world, um, for, for obvious reasons, economically, you know, just the size of our country and everything else. Um, you know, so if you, if you do the math, you know, 30,000, and even if all the other countries, if it's 100,000, it's going to take a lot of years for people right. yeah, no, know, to that's... leave this situation. So you've got generations of people who've lived in refugee camps their entire life. Um, and... You know, when you are a refugee, so you're in a second country, you often don't speak the language, it's very difficult to get permission to work. You get some things, or, you know, camps are supplied with certain things, but it, it's, it's not a lifestyle right, most of right, us would exactly. choose, choose to exist in. And often there's just no, no way to go home. Yeah. You 
So I, I think that's a big crisis that, you know, if you think about places like Syria and, and Afghanistan. Yeah. Okay. But Central America is, is another issue. And, and the challenge is, you know, nobody really wants to leave home. Of course not. You know, I mean, you have to, I, I always try to think about what, what conditions would have to be so bad yeah. that I'm willing to take a risk of going to someplace illegally um, without documentation, without permission, what, and put myself in risk not only at that border, but on the journey. How bad must it be? And, and I think if it were purely economics, um, I, that would be a pretty tough decision to make. So I think it's much, it's much bigger than that. And, and I think what we've tended to do is ignore what the root cause is, particularly from Central America. And, and the fact that probably U.S. policies have, have created a lot of those situations. Right, yeah. And so it's, it's easy to say, you know, we need to stop the flow at the border. And I, I, you know, I honestly, there's a few people who believe in open borders, but that's not really what most people believe. Most people believe we have a right to protect our um, and that there should be a, a, a process for people to come in. But what most people don't understand is that those processes are so restricted that people in those desperate situations really don't have a way to come in. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have folks ask me all the time, well, can't, can't you just sponsor somebody? Can't they just get in line? And the answer is no. No. You, you know, there are a very finite set of rules that allow people to immigrate here. And so... You know, Desmond Tutu's got a great quote that is, um, said at some point, so there comes a point where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find why they're falling in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very true of the situation that we're dealing with right now on our southern border, is that we're pulling people out of the river, literally, literally and figuratively, but we're refusing to, to really take any significant action to change the conditions right. that are putting them in the river to begin with. And and that's where a lot of the contention and heartache came from this past summer was they made it even harder by denying even asylum seekers, right? Right. And, and so it's, you know, this is a, there is a crisis in that it's humanitarian. And one of the things that's changed at the border is until the last year or two, most of the people coming and attempting to cross were men, usually unaccompanied. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we have this kind of cavalier response that, well, you know, men are tough. They can put themselves in those situations. They're willing to take that risk. They'll do what they need to do. What's changed is now that the people are coming are women and children. What historically had happened is the men would come, try to get in, earn money, send money back. And, and people could kind of tolerate the conditions. And so I don't know, but either the conditions have gotten so much worse that the women and children are now fleeing. There is speculation that people are being coached, that they have a better chance if they're coming mm-hmm. with women and children. I don't know if that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the mix has changed. Yeah. And the way they're traveling, I mean, you know, we've all heard stories of, what the this the, the coyotes that are, are people are paying thousands of dollars to be transported and the danger you know of of violence of physical abuse 
even if you're male, I mean, that doesn't protect you. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, and, and being mistreated in, in many, many ways. Um, to get here to, to maybe seek asylum or to sneak across the border, whatever, I mean, that's a huge risk to take all the way. And now putting women and children has, I think, is really what's raised more people's awareness mm-hmm. is that we're much more sympathetic to that, yeah. to that plight. That, and, and, so interesting. And so, you know, and so I don't think we were prepared at the border for that change, and we're still dealing with that. The numbers up until the last several months have really been at 20-year lows. So uh, when a lot of the rhetoric started, the numbers were not at historic eyes. When people crossing the border, absolutely. They have been. They always will attempt to. Right. I, 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 we'd be that's, naive that's sort to of... say that wasn't going to happen. Um, but we were not in a situation where the numbers were anywhere near what they had peaked at. Um, in fact, more Mexicans are actually going back to Mexico now than coming into the United States. It wasn't the Mexicans. It was the Central Americans. Right, yeah. So... What's changed is who is coming um, and where people could not afford the coyotes. They're traveling in these caravans because there's safety in numbers. Right. And so that's, that's really the condition that I think has created a real crisis, mm-hmm. a real humanitarian crisis. And so then the issue is what happens at the border. So by international law that we've agreed to, if someone presents themselves and seeks asylum, there's a process that they're entitled to go through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, I'm a lot older than you, but I, in my childhood, I remember it was always a big deal when, like, the Cuban baseball team would come to the United States because they were always – or a Soviet team would come because they were always surrounded by right. handlers from their country because they were always afraid people were going to defect. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's my memory – of, of dealing with this or of being aware of this as a kid. Um, and and so if they could get away from their handlers and they could get to someone and say, I'm seeking asylum, you know, we, we went through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that those laws are in place, but what's happened is there's so many coming and asking for that. How do you manage that number? Mm-hmm. There's a backlog. Um, the numbers coming, the backlog gets worse. Um, and so the other thing that happened was under the Clinton administration, they criminalized crossing the border without inspection. So if you don't come through the port with a visa, you haven't technically been inspected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, you know, if you come with a visa, if you, if you come in as a tourist, or an employment visa or something, and that visa expires, you're now undocumented. Mm-hmm. That's considered a civil offense, okay. like a traffic ticket. Right, yeah. If you cross the border without inspection, that's a, that's now been made a criminal offense. It's like a misdemeanor. Right. But there's a difference in criminal and civil. Right, yeah. So, so now they've criminalized these folks who are crossing the border without inspection. And what's happened is up until this administration, the enforcement of that has been pretty loose, meaning they were often picked up and they might have been charged and deported, but not every single person was. Right. And 
and there was more discretion in how it was done. Um, and, and partly what created the crisis was that they were charging literally everybody who came in. So now you have them detained. There's a limited number of beds available, right. and they weren't really built for families. These, right, exactly. These detention centers were really not built with families in mind. Now, one of the issues there is private detention centers, private, you know, for-profit companies running these detention centers. So are they really humanitarian in nature? Right. Um, and people will argue whether they should be or not. Um, how many beds? You know, Congress sets the number of beds um, available in those. And, and what are the conditions? Um, I think it's been really hard to get fact-based uh, inspections mm -hmm. of these places. Is there any particular reason for that? Um, I, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. But what we are hearing consistently from, from folks who have been detained is that the first point of detention is called the ice boxes, the hilaros. And, you know, I've heard everything from, the, you know, the temperature's 49 degrees. Oh, jeez. Um, you're basically, and, and some of our staff has been down at the border mm -hmm. working with some of the nonprofits down there, um, and they were literally, as the folks were in line waiting for their number to be called to go through for their credible fear interview for their asylum, um, the nonprofits were actually coaching the folks to wear their warmest layer of clothing next to their skin. So if they had a sweatshirt and a t-shirt, our normal way of layering would be you put your t-shirt on, then you put a long sleeve shirt, then you put a sweatshirt and a coat. So whatever their warmest layer was, they were told to put it next to their skin because they would be stripped of everything other than the one layer closest to their skin. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're put into these ice boxes um, for usually two to three days. Um, they probably are given a blanket. Um, but they're not conditions that I would call humane. No. Again, I can't say there's I, been an inspection unit to go in there. I get chilly in my apartment when I, it's like 60 degrees. I like, this office with the heater on. Like, <laughs> you know? so, so that's you know that's one of the concerns is what's really happening with that. Is that appropriate? I've heard stories, and again, don't know, that it's because for health that, that, that you know, the cold keeps, if there's infection, if there's bugs, if there's things like that, it keeps... You know, I couldn't sit in 49 degrees very long without, right. you know, without problems. The second step are called the dog cages, Pereros. And they are basically chain-link fenced areas that hold approximately 24 people with a common pot for pot, for, for bathroom, um, no privacy. Um, and, it's, and, and in all these cases, they're separated out men, women. So children are being separated from their parents right. for these periods of time. So while it's not the separation necessarily that was the big issue, um, which was used as a deterrent, it's, it's still happening in a, in a smaller increment, um, but not without, without impact. So, you know, I, there's been... There's, you know, I know a number of Congress people have gone to the border and, and asked to see these and basically have been denied. Um, so I, I think that's a question that we have to answer is what is appropriate for detention? 
And these are privately owned detention centers that are denying them. They are contracted by our federal government and run by private companies for profit Mm -hmm. to to manage these. I I don't know what conditions, what the contracts say, what conditions, you know, who imposes those conditions. Right. Um, All I do know is that it's not a handful. It's every single person who has come out of that is telling us of these conditions. But because it's privately owned, that's why like federal employees can't go in and inspect? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't know if it's an administration policy that's saying that. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's certainly, if you have nothing to hide, then why, then why, you why would you not come in and say these are the conditions that we're putting folks in and we're, you know, we're, we're doing our best to treat them humanely? Um, you know, so the assumption that everybody who comes across is a criminal, I think, creates a mindset that says, I can treat them like a criminal, right. not a human being. Um, and so I think that's, that's a crisis. It's a crisis of conscience, if nothing else, mm-hmm. as to, you know, are these folks really criminals in the sense of, you know, now, are there, are there, are, are there folks who are less than stellar? that we would not want to enter our country. Absolutely. Are there folks that are less are than stellar already our in our country? Absolutely. <laughs> but, but the point being, you know, and the point of not, of, without inspection, is that what's your screening mechanism? Right. And so when they come to the border, they get screened. Have they been deported? You know, have they been to the U.S. before? Have they been deported? Do they have a criminal record in the U.S.? All of those kinds of things are taken into account. And so, you know, but I, I would I would question... A local jail that has an ice box. Right, exactly. You know, as I would consider that inhumane. Um, how how does that do anything to rehabilitate someone? How does that right. and, 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 do and, anything but dehumanize right. someone? And we could do a whole other podcast right. on, exactly. on, on rehabilitation in our, our prison system. But but the point is, you know, I think there is a crisis in the sense that. We, we weren't prepared for the change and who was coming. Right. Um, the, the number while overall down has spiked. Um, and, ha- and the crisis is how do we treat, how do we treat these folks um, humanely, protect ourselves, protect our borders, uh, protect our country, um, but do the right thing. Right. And, and you know, again, I, everybody gets accused of being open borders and I really just don't believe that most people generally think no I don't think so either Um, but you know this is you know if you think about where our country was and how our country was really built is there weren't limitations on the numbers right and and I also think there's a really a false and this is kind of our American egocentric view of the world is that everybody wants to come to the United States right exactly it's just not true um I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel to a number of countries and some very poor countries. Not everybody wants to come to the United States. Some people see it as their hope for their family, mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly a better life. But that doesn't mean everybody, you know, it's not like 7 billion people are going to come running to our doors. Right, exactly. Um, so I think there's a false assumption and a kind of an egotistical, you know, big American thing that, you know, we're the best country in the world. 
I, I don't disagree, we're a great country, but that doesn't mean everybody wants to be here or that everybody doesn't think their own country is a great country. Right. Um, or, you know, would just prefer to be home, whatever home is. Right. And so I, you know, I think we've got to kind of get ourselves out of that mindset and really, yeah. you know, deal with it. But, you know, so I, I'm rambling, but I think it's, you know, no. I think our, our immigration policy needs to be looked at. I think, you know, and that includes securing borders. I don't think we need a physical wall. I think there's much more modern technology. Oh my goodness, yes. That's probably less expensive and less, less um, damaging to the environment and everything else, um, and probably more effective. Well, um, I mean, with this recent, I can't remember what the guy's name was, the huge drug kingpin who... El Chapo. Yeah, El Chapo. I mean, like, he wasn't, like, driving through a wall. He was, like, building tunnels. He was, like, doing all this kind of well, stuff that circumvent a wall. And, and, you know, if you want to talk about the drug trade, it's... They're coming through the ports. They're not coming... Right, exactly. They're not crossing through the desert. They're coming through the ports. So what does a big cement or metal right. or whatever fancy term you want to say for a wall do anything? You know, and it's interesting. You can talk to law enforcement at the border, and you'll find as many who say a wall will work as who say a wall will not work. You find people who live across the border, you know, along the border, who say, I want a wall, I don't want a wall. It will help, they'll get a taller ladder. You know, I, I mean, so there's not, there's not a real consensus that a wall is the solution. Um, you know, so that's, that's part of it. Um, but it's like, a, it's almost like a a deeper kind of conversation, like a spiritual conversation of what does this wall symbolize? Well, yeah. And I, you know, I think, you know, in, in our, in our world leader role, we have prided ourselves on, on encouraging the removal of walls. If you think about the Berlin Wall. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like that, that, you know, granting freedom to folks is, is important, you know, and, and that, but that's, you know, I think the, the hard part is that's keeping people, you know, that was removing walls that were keeping people in. Mm-hmm. So this is keeping people out. Interesting. And, yeah. And, and you know, it, it's interesting if you, you know, I've traveled to Brazil and it's, you know, almost every house, no matter how poor, is encapsulated by some kind of wall. It's protection. Mm-hmm. And we've had kids from Brazil come up here, and they're, like, scared because our houses don't have these big oh walls around. I was like, yeah. aren't you afraid? And we're like, no, because that's not the nature for most of us, that we're not experiencing that danger, imminent danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, there's – the wall is, is a symbol. Right, as yeah, much as exactly. Anything. And, and I think it's – I think it's something that the administration has just glommed on that this is the answer. and. It was a campaign promise, so I'm going to do whatever I can to get the campaign right, promise. Right, exactly. You know, and so, again, I don't, I don't believe most people really are against securing the border. They want to do it in, what, in a way that makes the most sense and is most effective, both cost-effective, environmentally effective, and, and effective in terms of doing what it's intended to do. Right. Um, and most, many people just don't think the wall is the answer. So, regardless of that, um, you know, we, we need new policy. We need to address the 11 million undocumented. 
and quite frankly, not all of them deserve to stay. Um, so how do we handle that? Um, you know, and, but th there seems to be, this administration seems to be taking many steps to end immigration, period. Yeah. Legal and illegal. So where, where do you think that sort of rhetoric or sort of narrative comes from? Is this something that has been present within conservative politics or is this something that's more of like a recent phenomenon? Well, I certainly think, you know, the 2016 election caused a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the rhetoric around, there was an approach that, quite frankly, um, the Trump team used. And if you think about what's happened economically in our country, where manufacturing jobs have diminished yeah. significantly. So you've got um, entire regions of the country that have high unemployment, don't have jobs coming in, and so forth. Um, and, and so you've got a group of people who have, or, or even think about the coal industry has died. So you've got regions of the country that don't, don't see hope, don't see any opportunity for them. And then immigrants are, are coming into the country and working. Well, the immigrants are actually coming in and doing jobs. No one, no one wants to do. do. Yeah. Um, you know, out on the Eastern shore, uh, we just we did our first legal clinic out there uh, about a month ago. White Americans will not go and pick tomatoes or pick right. potatoes. It's certainly not in the conditions, and and I'm not saying those conditions are are are, are right, but you know we kind of want it both ways. Mm -hmm. So if you want to, you know, what would it cost for you know the American to to go work in those fields, I'm not sure there's a there's a salary mm -hmm. that most Americans would be willing to do that work. Right. So, who's going to do it? So, so our food industry has has been for many years dependent on migrant workers. Oh yeah. E even even if Americans would do this, are they willing to migrate throughout the year? to be in Florida over the winter, to come to Virginia in the summer and to go somewhere else in the fall to follow the work. Again, most Americans don't want to do that. It's mm -hmm. certainly not for the wages that we're willing to pay and willing means what we're, you know, so all that translates into how much we'll pay for strawberries and how much we'll pay for right. food and stuff. So I think, you know, the combination of this kind of death of manufacturing, and really, it's impacted the middle class. Mm. There, and 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 quite frankly, nobody politically was listening to the middle class to say, "Hey, you know." So we, we focus on the poor. The rich get a lot of attention, and the folks in the middle, when they were doing okay, it was fine. Mm. When the, when economically they've taken a beating, um, it, it changed what was. Um, how they felt. And, and one of the things that has happened is in many of these kind of dying cities, um, a meatpacking plant will open. And so immigrants will move there because if they're paying a dollar more an hour than the meatpacking plant in someplace else, they'll go for that. Right, exactly. Um, and so now, and National Geographic had a great article on this. There's a town in Pennsylvania where just that happened. You know, 10 years ago, the town 
was, you know, 90% white. Now it's 50% white. Yeah. And, and, you know, people feel like it's not their town anymore. But what's happening is immigrants are coming in. They're, they're doing some of this work that a lot of the white population won't do. Um, and it's hard work. Um, and they're building the economy of this community. Right. But it doesn't look and it doesn't feel like what I've always known. Right, exactly. So that change is hard for particularly small towns. In, in an area as populous as the Washington Met area, we're diverse by nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it hasn't always been this way. But And even in our diversity, we still live in our silos. Right, exactly. And interact in our silos. But in a small town, that change is much more dramatic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so um, when they're seeing, you know, when the Americans are seeing their kids leave those small towns because there's not opportunity, and so the things that are happening are being filled in by others, um, it causes great discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, communities that have embraced it are thriving. You know, Detroit's whole recovery strategy is has has an element of it of of bringing in immigrants mm-hmm. because they're willing to do kind of the dirty work to get stuff started and they build kind of, um you know they build local businesses they build they build up the community mm-hmm. um, and and because you know where it's white flight you know people are fleeing these conditions mm-hmm. which what's left behind you know somebody's got to pick it up mm-hmm. and and population seems to be willing to do that so it's this stuff's not easy and so i i think you know i think politically in the campaign um trump did an incredible job of of building his base from those folks who are mad that their jobs are gone um frustrated that there doesn't seem to be much being done to help them corporate greed continues at an all-time high all the really poor people seem to be getting all of the help. Um, so who's helping me? And so that message of these are the folks who are causing your problems resonated with them. Mm-hmm. These folks being the immigrants. Right. It's not really true, but it resonated. And it, right. it gives you a, a, somebody to be mad at and to blame. Mm-hmm. Um, gives a scapegoat. It gives a scapegoat. And so, you know... I, I mean, he played he played the political game extraordinarily well, and I think um, I, I think everybody else kind of missed it. And I think, to a great extent, we're still missing the fact mm-hmm. that the middle classes who's hurt it, it, certainly the poor are always hurting, but right. the middle class are hurting, and 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 we're seeing these bigger wage gaps. We're seeing um, less opportunity, and you know, I mean, if you and living in this area in particular, it's so highly competitive. You know, everybody has to have a college degree. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've kind of diminished the value of trades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we haven't, you know, not everybody is meant to have a college degree. Okay. Not everybody should or wants to. Right, but exactly. But they just feel compelled. That's, that's, that's my next only thing. path. Right. And, and, you know, we can statistically show if you get a college degree, your income level is going to be higher. Well, I don't know how long that's going to hold true. Mm-hmm. You know, that was true for my generation and maybe the next generation. It's not necessarily true 
for this generation. Right, exactly. Because there aren't, you know, and, and there used to be those manufacturing jobs and things where you didn't have to have a college degree. And also, manufacturing has changed. Mm-hmm. It's much more high tech. Right. So it's not just, you know, inspecting something along the way. You might have to have some engineering knowledge. You know right. what I mean? And that's the complexity of all of this kind of thing. So, I, you know, again, if there were easy answers, we'd figure it out. The stuff's not easy. And so I, I think Trump ran an amazing campaign and, and really captured the, the, particularly the Midwestern middle class who, you know, and let's face it, those communities, I grew up there. They're not diverse. Um, you know, they're not even diverse black and white, let alone, you know, people from other countries. Right, exactly. Um, and, and so they play to a base fear and a base position that nobody's helping me. Mm-hmm. Now, we can argue whether the policies that he's putting in place are, are helping them now. Right, but exactly. They're here, they're, they're, they feel they're being heard. Yeah. Um, whether anything's really helping them or not remains to be seen. And that's such an important aspect of what it means to be human and what it means to be in community with other people is just the simple fact of I have a voice and I need someone right. to hear me. Right. And what the other thing I find so interesting is that we like to put um, things into silos. We like to put our religion into one silo and our politics into one silo. And even that can be subcategorized right. into like, well, I feel this way about abortion and this way about immigration and this way about economics, but everything is so interconnected. And so, you know, like it's all about economics. It's all about power. It's all about immigration. It's all about our shared common life together. And it's all so interweaving. Well, and I I think the tendency is to, we we tend to lump people into large categories, Um, be it political party, be it religion. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, with the crisis in the Methodist Church right now, it's obvious we're not all in one big category. Right, exactly. Um, you know, you could, you, could, you could pull 10 people from any congregation, and you're going to find almost any element of religion, of the faith, you're not going to necessarily get 10 people to agree on. You know, it could be the virgin birth, it could be abortion, it could be gay rights, whatever. Um, you know, I mean, I think we, we worship together because we think we have general things in common, but when you drill down to specific elements, you might find there's not as much in common as you think. Right. And I, and, and so we tend to lump people. So if you're pro-immigrant, you're a liberal. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, if you're anti-immigrant, you're a conservative. Well, that's not necessary. That's one one issue. There may be an array of issue. I know people who are pro-immigrant who are anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. I know people who are pro-life who are anti-immigrant. So, you know, we're, we're in this practice of, of all Democrats or all Republicans or all Christians or all Muslims are something. And there's never an yeah, it's just, it's, it's just not a, that black and white. Right, it's a spectrum. Um, everybody's on a spectrum of everything. Right. And so when we when we generalize, we lose that ability to understand that we're not a all alike. 
um, we're not going to agree on everything, but we probably have more in common than we have different. Right. And and by generalizing, we 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 lose that ability to acknowledge the uniqueness of everybody. Right. And I th- and I think that's pointing at you know like experience is what drives us so deeply, but we we often times disassociate ourselves from our experience. So we just lump ourselves into those categories as well. So not only are we lumping others into these categories, but we lump ourselves into right. these categories because it, I don't know, it, it's almost like we're providing ourselves a buffer from really encountering our experience and really like digging into that and also recognizing that, oh, someone else has very unique experiences that are determining how they feel about situation A, right. situation B, situation C. In order of equal value to mine. Right. And and sometimes it's lack of experience as much as it is experience. You know, I I grew up in a town that was 100% white, had sundowner laws, wouldn't sell real estate to black people. Oh, my goodness. Um, and I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I would like to say that that's all gone away, but clearly it hasn't. Um, and... You know, so my exposure to people of color was very limited until right. I got to college. Right, same. Um, and even there, it was very limited. Yeah. <laughs> so until I moved here and, and also started traveling outside of the United States, did I have any perspective to offer at all? Right. Um, my perspective was a very white-centric view of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm white. I'm always going to have a white-centric view. Right. But my ability to even understand or comprehend what people of color were experiencing or what, in my position of white privilege, was causing, I had no context for that at all. Right. Um, and, and, you know, when I go back and visit family and, and friends in the Midwest, and I'll say, do you know any... African-American people, and there's a mix, um, you know, certainly more than would have 20 years ago. Right. Uh, do you know any Hispanics? No. Do you know any Muslims? No. And so how do you make conclusions about Hispanics or Muslims if you don't know any? Right. It's what you read. It's what you hear. Yeah. It's it what you quote, experience. what you study. Yeah. Um, but it's not what you experience. Right. And so part of what we at Just Neighbors do and part of our, our, our construct is we're very volunteer-centric. And part of that mission is that we want to connect the, the typical non-immigrant in a personal connection to an immigrant so that they hear that person's personal experience in a way. Because, again, as integrated as we are in Northern Virginia, if you go look at my church, it looks like me. Oh my goodness, yeah, same. Um, if you you know look at my friend, my immediate friend group, it mostly looks like me. Um, that's our human nature. Um, but if I don't have myself or expose myself or have friends or folks beyond those who look like me, I, I don't have the, I don't have a, a legitimate ability to understand or connect. So we, we try to get the folks out of the church pew and come in and sit down and help us with the work. And they get to sit and write down the story yeah. that our clients are telling. And so 
they're hearing firsthand. And, and what over time that does is that all of a sudden it's not a they. It's I, I know an immigrant who this is what they went through. Yeah. And so um, that's been part of our mission since our birth as an organization was to kind of build that community that way. We're small and it happens in small numbers, but you know, it, it is, um, it's a way of creating that exposure that right. you might not otherwise have. Right. And you know, I mean, I, as I try to remind my friends here, you get some, we're in a bubble here, just like where I grew up was a bubble. Yeah. It's a different bubble. Here, it's kind of an overexposure. I mean, we're overexposed to national politics because it's our lo- it's our neighborhood. Right. You know, we're the capital, and you know, I go I go visit my brother, and there's a half an hour of national news, mm-hmm. unless you're watching the channels incessantly. You know, and that's what most people hear yeah. is that 30 minutes of national news if they watch it at all. Mm-hmm. Here. 24-7, our local news is what's happening nationally. Right. So we're, we're overexposed mm-hmm. to some of that. And, and we, we think, why isn't everybody else outraged? Right. <laughs> they're not hearing this. Right, exactly. You know, it's just like when the government shutdown happened. You know, I asked my family, you know, are you all feeling impacted? No. Well, you know, it was impacting here because we're so government employee intensive. Right, Exactly. On the other hand, when there's a, a major recession, we don't feel it as much here because there's because we have so many government employees. Others are suffering, and we're not sensitive mm-hmm. to it. So, you know, part of it is we all kind of live in our bubbles, whatever those mm-hmm. bubbles are, that we forget that not everybody lives the same way or hears or experiences things the same way. Right. You know, half of the people in the United States have never left probably the state that they grew up in. You if know, not the small town that they grew up in. If not the small town. And probably fewer than half have ever left the country. Mm-hmm. And so your perspective by default is narrower. Right. Um, you know, I, I've been privileged enough to travel either as a tourist or on mission trips or whatever. Um, and I've seen a lot of places and I've seen it from a, you know, I get to see all the pretty stuff because mm-hmm. I'm on, on vacation and I don't really get to see what's behind the scenes. To, to being in Haiti and Mozambique and parts of Brazil um, that has poverty that we can't imagine in this country. Right. Um, and and so my eyes are open differently because I have witnessed that. Yeah. And I've experienced that. And I've talked with people who experience that. Um, I, I haven't had anybody rush up to me and say, please take me back to the United States with you. Mm-hmm. you know, take right. me out of this. Right. You know, it's... What can we do here to change conditions? Because this is your home. This, this is, is your, their home. This, this is, is your life. Be. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I think that experience has changed me. Yeah. Has, has uh, my exposure to different things certainly has changed my attitude about it. I, I often kind of wonder if I had stayed, if I had stayed in, in the Midwest, how would I feel? probably be very different because my experience would be very different. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to have those experiences because I think it has changed my perspective. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, but I also recognize not everybody has that same opportunity. Um, and so how, do, you know, how do we change, 
how do we offer people broader perspectives? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, people ask me all the time, so what can we do? I'm like, build relationships with people who don't look and act like you. Right. Get to know somebody. Um, you know, it's, it's, we had, when we were talking about moving just neighbors, when I was, before I was in this position, uh, right before I was in this position, we had a meeting at our church about how people felt about that because we knew folks, some folks would not be happy. And one person said, you know, are you offering sanctuary? Are you going to, you know, I'm like, no, that's not what we do. That's not the point about this. Um, and interestingly enough, a couple weeks later, and I had already started in the position, maybe it was a couple months later, that same person called and said, I just met the loveliest person. She's an immigrant. I think she maybe could use your help. But funny. You know, two months ago, before you met this person and heard their individual story, you're worried about what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Now that you've met somebody and you can, you can sympathize with their plight, it's different. Yeah. And you have a different feeling towards this situation. Um, and so it, that, it just, that just served to remind me that, you know, if we reach out to the other and know who the other is, really is not not what somebody's telling us they are um and not you know and and everybody's experiences are different that doesn't mean everybody's going to have a good experience right um but if we don't try you know try to build relationships and try to get to know other people then we're only going based on other people's information right and you know i don't know it's the kind of the trust but verify mentality you know okay but you know i mean there's certainly people i trust but i I need to know for myself yeah yeah and i think i think one of the ways that i talk about that idea a lot is you know like it tapping into or getting in tune with like the spirit of love which exists within not only myself, but within all things. So that's why it's so crucial, not only to be in relationship with yourself and understanding your own experience and where you come from and your background, but then also branching out to understand what the experience of other people is and being in community and relationship with other people and also being in relationship with the cosmos, with the planet, with what nature is telling us, with what our world is telling us. Because, I mean, that's a broader conversation that could be had at a later time but you know like that's that's why that's so important and you know i i have a lot of misgivings about institutional church Mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to that Mm -hmm. Uh, but i mean like church at its best and why i think church has persisted so long is it's meant to help you not only uncover those experiences of yourself but also to begin coming into intentional community with other people and uncovering their experiences and bringing you into communion with what the, what is going on in the world. And I think you hit it on the head. I mean, I think, you know, from a church perspective, you know, and again, kind of dealing with this whole Methodist crisis personally is the big church. You know, there's a lot of things about the big church that I value in the connectional aspect. of Right. But what's most important to me, are, is my local congregation and, and the folks who have helped form me. Um, their presence is much more important than a, than a policy mm-hmm. um, around something. And, and, you know, we talk, people talk about, well, I don't go to church, I'm spiritual. You know, you're missing that community. 
Right. And I, I, I mean, and I, for me personally, I grew up going to church. We were never involved. I, you know, I took the typical 18-year absence um, in, in my young adult life. And when I finally decided to go back to church and found the church that I go to, um, I, I actually ended up, you know, I did the sneak in the back door kind of thing, sneak out initially. And then where it really started to be meaningful for, meaningful for me was when I started getting involved. And I started building those relationships. Yeah. And now that is my family. Right. Um, and I think people miss out on that opportunity. And I think it applies outside of church as well. Right, exactly. It's that, you know, it, it, if we don't have relationships, what are we? I, you know, I'm me, I'm nothing else. I'm, you know, and it, it, life is really about building those relationships. And and I think the challenge is it's a lot easier to build them with people who act and think like you, but it's a lot less interesting. Right. And and um, very, very narrowing if, if you don't pursue those relationships with people who are not like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we can never fully understand somebody else's experience, but we can certainly be much more understanding of, of needs and things like that if we're willing to, to open ourselves to to learning about the other whoever yeah. and whatever the other is yeah. yeah so so interesting so compelling so you know encouraging <laughs> I, like I'm like fired up I want to go out and do something so we've talked about you know like the importance of building relationships with the people in your community particularly those who are not like us mm-hmm. but you know, in terms of just neighbors, what are some other ways that people can be involved either here in Northern Virginia or possibly, you know, on a more national scale? Well, there's a couple things. Um, first of all, you know, and I, I've, I've never liked politics. Um, I've had to, to learn to accept the fact that I'm in the middle of it. Right. Um, but advocacy is, is a big thing. And advocacy can be as much as writing your congressperson or a state legislator um, on how, you know, I mean, and really challenge people's stance on things. So if you if you think it's wrong that we're holding people in, in detention centers that are at 49 degrees, you need to let somebody know that. Right. Um, and, and if you don't, then it's, it's kind of... Um, acceptance by default. Um, and so I think one thing that everybody can do is to communicate with our elected officials and let them know where they stand. Um, I think, you know, from a Just Neighbors perspective, we're part of a national organization. There's, I think, 18 or 19 other organizations that are, are Just Neighbors type entities around the country. Um, and so and there's other nonprofits who do similar work to what we do. Um, I, I, you know, and I will tell you the biggest challenge is we have way more demand than we have resources to, to meet it. Um, I currently probably we're able to take 25 to 30 percent of the clients who call us for help. We refer out the rest um, to the other nonprofits or low bono attorneys in the area. None of us have the capacity to serve the demand. Right. Um, so supporting organizations like Just Neighbors or other nonprofits that do this kind of work is important. Um, I, you know, I think 
volunteering, getting involved with these organizations. Most, not every organization uses volunteers the way we do, but a lot do. Um, and there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, there, you know, you can, part of, the, part of the challenge for the immigrant population right now is they're living in fear. Even if they're documented, they live in fear. It sounds like a lot of people are living in fear yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so helping, helping people to feel safer is, is important. And letting them know um, that they're welcome here and that you're glad they're here. And, and, you know, so there's everything from accompanying people to hearings. You know, if you're undocumented and, and, and you've got a deportation order, you're required... You know, even if you cross the border and you're waiting for your asylum hearing, you're required to report to ICE um, and so forth. And so accompanying people to that because it's scary. Um, going to court is scary and people are getting detained in court. They're showing up for their appointments and are getting detained. So accompanying them so that there's a witness, not that, it, not that something horrible is going to happen, but so that... A, they do what they, they need to do, and B, that if something does happen, you know, there's someone to say, hey, I want you to know somebody got detained, you know, to their family and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of things that people can do, um, you know, that they can make a difference. And I think, um, you know, the biggest thing is just to care about other people. Um, you know, it's, this is... People are living in fear, and, and some say, well, they're breaking the law, so they should be afraid. Um, I, it's hard not to look at humanity, you know, um, and, you know, should, should the DACA kids be mad at their parents for bringing them? Maybe, but it doesn't change the fact that they're here. Right. And, and they're just kids, or now young adults. They just, they just want to have a normal life. They don't know anything different. In the United States, um, they have the same value as a human being as you or I have. So, why would we want? Why deny them that? Right. Um, so, I think I think the big thing is really just to reach out to, to build relationships in a way. And you know, you can't just walk up and say, "Hi, are you an immigrant? I'd like to be your friend." Right. <laughs> right. Not quite. It takes that, a little more tact. <laughs> but but to create. An environment where people feel safe and feel welcomed. Um, we, we talk about this in church. Mm-hmm. You know, we want people to feel welcome when they come in the doors. Well, what does that mean? You know, right. does does that mean you know you judge them by how they're dressed or by the color of their skin or what action they take? Um, I, you know, I mean, we have to really think about welcoming. Yeah. Um, and. And you know, folks say, "Well, they don't understand our culture." Well, well, then teach, teach them, show them the things, and say, you know, you know, because God knows when I've traveled, I'm I am not acculturated to other countries. Right. And, you know, certainly when I take mission teams, we do we spend time talking about culture and behavior and what's expected, and not to be the ugly American. Well, we should be the same here. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't expect somebody to walk in, whether they're a tourist or they're undocumented, and know everything about our culture and how we do things. Something as simple as littering. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not old enough again. There, you know, I mean, we used to have 
public service announcements about littering in the United States, and it changed be people's behavior, and we started to take pride in not littering. If you've ever been to a, another country, third world in particular, you'll notice that there's not garbage trucks coming by weekly to pick up, and you know, and that's not what people right. do. So I don't by crossing that border doesn't mean I understand whether I crossed it legally or not, doesn't mean I understand right. how things happen here. So if if you want people to behave a certain way, model it, teach it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, let them know that they're required to have safety seats for children in cars, that we don't litter, that there's just certain things we we kind of do and don't. Not in a hateful way, but just so that they understand what the culture is. Mm -hmm. And learn what their culture is. Right, learn exactly. How, how, you know, why would they do something like that? If you don't know, you, find you out. Have, right, find out. Um, we're yeah. all learning and we're all growing. Right, so I, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, just to, instead of getting mad and hating on people, is really reach out and get to know them mm -hmm. um, and, and under you know and understand more why they are the way they are and it, it, we might go oh well that makes more sense than I thought yeah um, yeah so. it's amazing I know at least in my experience the simple act of opening my ears and listening to someone else has been so eye-opening mm -hmm. for me and I know I know for me me and my parents don't necessarily always get along when it comes to <laughs> political um, thought and voting and all that kind of stuff. And there have been quite a few times where I have been in conversation with them and I've intentionally tried to just open my ears to listen to what it is they're saying. Mm -hmm. And just in that simple act, so much is made apparent to me. And, you know, I am able to empathize better with you know, what it is that has drawn them to right. voting the way that they vote right. or thinking the way that they think, you know, their experience is just as, like you said, it's just as vital. It's just as valid. And valid yeah. as mine. Um, so, yeah, that is. And, 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 you know, and again, for depending on where you grew up and what economic conditions you're in, their experience may be much more limited. Right, yeah. And what your exposure has been. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard to remember that sometimes. And certainly as kids, you know, when when we reach 16 and we, we gain all knowledge, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that our parents are complete idiots, um, you know, it, it, it's it's hard to, you know, accept anything that your parents believe. But as you mature and you figure out, oh, they weren't totally wrong, um, or they may have been totally wrong, you know, but it's more fact-based than just, you know, I've received all knowledge. Um, and then also having the humility to be able to say yourself, I'm wrong. Yes. I don't yeah. have all the answers. I don't know it yeah. all. Or, that or is... what I thought was right, I now understand is completely wrong. Right. Right. Um, and and I disagreed with you at the time, but I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so I do. I think it's important that I, you know, especially to those with whom we don't necessarily agree, it's important to listen. And we kind of lost the ability to have civil conversation mm -hmm. with folks we disagree with. That's definitely something that I've noticed over the past couple of years has just become more fragmented. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I have 
thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you, the listener, also are going to enjoy this conversation. Just Neighbors has a website, correct? Yes, justneighbors.org. Justneighbors.org. Go there. You can find out more information. If they're, you know, in a different part of the country, what are is there some sort of database with There's, different nonprofits? Yes, um, National Justice for Our Neighbors, uh, and their website. I'm looking is NJFON, National Justice for Our Neighbors, just the initials, .org. And on that website, you will see the affiliates around the country. Okay, perfect. So if you're in Northern Virginia, check out justneighbors.org. If you are somewhere else in the world listening, listen, uh, check out National Justice for Our Neighbors. N-J-F-O-N. N-J-F-O-N dot org. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us this fine, fine, beautiful morning. We normally end the podcast by saying peace and love, y'all. So if you would be so kind as to end us this fine morning. Peace and love, y'all. Peace and love, y'all. Thank you very much. Thank you.